0: I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. Ansamba Chute is a dutch mauritanian actor for television, movies, and video games, as well as a writer and stand-up comedian. He plays the character of Roach, the surgeon-slash-cook aboard a pirate ship in the HBO series Our Flag Means Death, co-starring Reese Darby and Taika Waititi, which was in the top 0.2% of titles across all streaming platforms in the U.S. during its first season run. It returns for a second season this year, which I welcome about as much as I welcome our guest today, which is to say quite a bit. Samba, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Hey, man. Happy to be here.
0: Well, I'm glad we're both happy this is happening. (laughs) Now, this is not the first time you've played a doctor on camera. You, of course, played Ethiopian heart surgeon Hakeem in the NBC series Sunnyside, but I may have witnessed your first ever (laughs) performance... As a doctor on screen. Oh my God. Because we first met in 2014 on the set of a short shoot, something we in the industry would call an industrial, which which was promoting an intravascular imaging device to hospitals and medical professionals. I was the assistant director on that set and you were the lead. You were the doctor guiding us (laughs) through the video, gesturing to important looking photographs of veins and empathetically interacting with ailing patients who for the record were actors as well. And you left, and this is genuine, you left such an impression on me on set. You just radiated warmth and positivity. And so to me, it's no surprise to see you where you are today.
1: Thank you, man. No, it's true. You know, I still have my doctor's badge from that short video we made back in 2014, and I still use it as a prop for whenever I need to audition for doctor or nurse roles. <laughs> <But> yeah,
0: <laughs> that's fantastic. I'm glad it's still getting mileage.
1: Yeah, no, that was my very first on screen doctor role, and it's just so funny to me that I come across as someone who knows about veins or you know, uh, limbs and nodes and God knows what. So yeah, I'm I'm impressed. Thank you guys for thinking so highly of me as an actor. Of course. And you know, I was
0: showing that very video to my girlfriend earlier today as I was preparing for this interview, and she'd never seen it before, of course. And Mm. as she's watching it, she was like, if I didn't already know that Samba was a comedian, I would think he was from this video (laughs) because it looks like he's always on
1: the verge of about to tell a joke. I am. I'm smiling so widely while I'm helping these poor patients in bed, (laughs) like telling them about veins and hearts and where the blood flows and this machine that will help them. And I'm doing it all with a huge smile i think that was the note it's just like be warm and friendly but i think i was over eagerly warm and friendly (laughs) so yeah i don't trust that doctor i don't trust him
0: well you know we can transition to talking about a doctor who might also not be so trustworthy and that's the one that you play (laughs) on our flag means death which your co-star nathan foe described as quote a half hour workplace comedy about pirates And then we can expand from there. You were a big fan of the show as far back, I think, as the summer of 2020, a year before the series even began filming. So how did you first hear about the show? And what was it about the premise that so hooked you?
1: So I heard about the show from a friend of mine, Karen, who was like, Samba, there's this show that's going around. Don't tell anybody, but I have access to the script. And I think you'd be perfect for a couple of roles in this. And I was like, oh my God, send it to me. So I read it and I saw that it was David Jenkins and Taika Waititi who were creating the show. And I was huge fans of them already. I knew David Jenkins' work from People of Earth, which is about a group of people who set up like an AA group, but about alien abductions. And then Taika Waititi, who, of course, I've been a, a huge fan of for years and years. So I was so eager to read it. And when I read the script, I was like, this is genius. Like, I love pirates. I love the wacky comedy that this script is, it was like in the vein of like those traditional British comedies, like Black Adder, you know, all those classic ones. And the casting director at the time was Alison Jones, who had to cast me in Sunnyside, where I play the heart surgeon slash cab driver. And so I immediately told my team in the summer of 2020, like, hey, man, there's this show that's going to be made soon. It's with Alison Jones, who knows me, who I've worked with, please, please, please just ask her if there's a way I can audition for this. And they're like, yeah, we're on it. We got this. So a year goes by <laughs> and I follow up with my team like, hey man, what's going on with that show? And they're like, oh, we we asked Allison, and unfortunately all the roles have already been cast. I was like, man, I didn't even get an audition for this. So I was bummed out, had given up on it. And then lo and behold, four months later, On a Saturday afternoon, I get an audition notice from my managers saying, yeah, they want you to audition for Roach. He's the cook slash surgeon and they need it by tomorrow. So I got on it, you know, immediately learned my lines and just did the audition. I was so excited to finally have the chance to do it. Sent in my tape and a week later I booked the job. So it was such a dream come true to wait a year and a half to basically get the chance to be a part of this project that I was so passionate about.
0: Before we dig into that audition process, because you had a really fast turnaround time between when you found out about the audition and when you had to turn in your tape, I just want to touch real quickly on what you said about Taika. I first became familiar with his work via his 2004 short film, Two Cars, One Night, Hmm. which I saw in 2008 in a screenwriting class. I'll put it in the show notes. It's still one of my favorite shorts. I believe you became familiar with him through his first feature film, Boy. Correct. What moved you about that film and why did you so connect with it?
1: So I'm a huge Michael Jackson fan. <laughs> and so is Taika. And in the film Boy, it's about this boy, a Maori boy who lives in a village who fantasizes about his dad being Michael Jackson. And he grew up without his dad, basically, and his dad finally comes to town and he tries to see his dad as a hero. But ultimately, the dad is not the hero he turns out to be. But I love the film because it was about a search for identity And because it tied in the ideal that we all want to strive towards. And for this boy, it was like, he was a huge Michael Jackson fan. And me being a Michael Jackson fan at the time, like watching this movie and seeing how quirky it was and how honest and simple, but beautiful it was. I was immediately intrigued by Taika's work. And ever since that movie, I kept watching every film he'd write or put out.
0: Okay. So back to that epic 24-hour turnaround on that audition. You had to put... Five scenes together for that audition. And and for those in our audience who don't have any context for how difficult that is, what does that look like, putting together five scenes in such a short period of time? And how the hell did you accomplish it?
1: (laughs) So I was so eager for this audition. So I I pushed myself really hard. Obviously, you have lines to learn, and five scenes of lines is not easy, you know, let alone one or two. Luckily, they were not five pages long. Each scene was about two pages. So it was about 10 pages of scenes of dialogue. And I just had to quickly jump into what makes me stand out as if I were a pirate because the pirate show, but they're supposed to be pirates who are not good at being pirates. (laughs) They're amateuristic pirates, if you want to, if you want to call it that. So I approached this character as, you know, he's the cook, I bake. And so I found an in with that, that I love baking for other people. But at the same time, why do you become the cook or the doctor on a pirate ship is because of survival. You want to be the necessary one that they don't kill off, right? Like everyone needs a cook. Everyone needs a surgeon. So his name being Roach motivated me to make him like a cockroach because cockroaches are survivors. Cockroaches (laughs) get through everything. They're the last one standing. And I thought of him as a cockroach. So I made him sneaky, survivey, kind of twitchy, you know, very aware of his surroundings and not trustworthy. And on top of that, I was like, okay, well, what would make me a pirate if I were a pirate just based on my background? I come from West Africa. In those days, you had the Berber pirates from the Northwest Africa region. So let me just be give him a Northwestern African accent. And so I tied that all in together in a couple of hours, learned my lines over another couple of hours. And then boom, you know I taped it with my wife who read the lines of everyone else and I sent the tape in just before the deadline the next day and my wife luckily had a pirate shirt that was all ripped up and torn up for Halloween. So I wore that and my baking apron and I just went ahead and submitted that tape with my fingers crossed. Each
0: actor's process is different in this regard, but how do you find a balance between capturing the character as realized in the script and respecting that creation and then making him your own or something more?
1: Well, at the end of the day, as an actor, you have to be of service to the story, right? So you can't change the storyline of the script. You're at the mercy of the lines that are given to you. And you're at the mercy of the scene, like from start to finish. It goes from point A to point B. So you're not in control of that. But what you are in control of is how you express yourself within those boundaries. So a line like, you know, there's one scene, for example, in the audition, which is the characters holding a knife in one hand and doing that game where, you know, you put the knife between your fingers. I think you posted this clip on Facebook, right? I did. Correct. So he takes the knife, he puts his hand on the table and he says, okay, I call this game stabby hands. And then he does the game, tries to go through all the fingers. And then he holds his hand up and there's a finger missing. And he says, I'm not very good at it. So there's a million ways to play that. You can either be super cocky and confident and go in and do it and then not care that your finger's missing, or you can be super nervous about it and, you know, be very bad at that and cry when you're holding up your hand with a missing finger. That's what you're in control of as an actor, the range of how you're going to express these things, which is terrifying because you have so much choice within those boundaries, to be honest with you. Like when you go in for a commercial audition and you have to say one line about toothpaste, which is, this makes me feel great that's your one line. And you can either do it very happy or you can do it, you know, very excited. You can do it very eager. You can do it in love. There's a million choices within the boundaries. And so I love that challenge of finding, okay, what rings true with me as a person and what rings true with what, what choice excites me and makes it funny for me. And I went with that for the audition. I played him cocky and trying to put on a bravado that he's tough, but actually he's, (laughs) he's a, He's awkward, you know, he's awkward. They all trying to be tough, these pirates, but they they don't belong.
0: Yeah, and he has an unpredictable nature. I mean, I guess pirates by their very nature are are somewhat unpredictable, but he has kind of like you said, like that, kind of roachy, unpredictable nature where you think, okay, this guy could give me a hug or stab me at any given moment. And I'm not exactly sure which one he's going to do, but (laughs) probably either action is going to be in his self-interest.
1: Well, when you see a cockroach on the wall, you are on edge. (laughs) You don't know if he's going to fly at you or spit in your face or, you know, it's just like you, you don't know, you know, you can't trust it. They terrify me. So I wanted to emulate that and just be like, this guy will have to keep you on your toes. At one moment, he can be like all smiley and happy. And the next moment he's all about survival. So that motivated me to make that choice. Just keep whoever you're interacting with in the scene on their toes. <laughs> and the
0: character details that you included for the character <laughs> well, ended up getting you 90 minutes in the makeup chair every day.
1: Talk to us a little bit about those tattoos. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, so Christine Wada, who is the costume designer for season one, was very open to our suggestions for how we see the character. So she had the idea that he wears an apron and a striped shirt And I was like, well, what about if the apron is filthy, you know, because he's not a good cook. And what about if he wears a sash as well as a souvenir of a memory from maybe his past, like his mom's sash or whatever that he wears across his hip, like they would, the the Berbers would in those days. She's like, I love that. And then I met with the head of makeup, Nancy Vincent. And she was like, what do you see this character as? I said, well, I think he should be filthy (laughs) because I think that's funny if the cook, the one that's responsible for sanitary behavior on the ship, cooking and doing surgery is filthiest, the filthiest, the dirtiest looking. And I was like to, and to honor his roots, maybe some tattoos, you know, some Berber tattoos that signify his traits. So she's like, what do you have in mind? So I showed her three tattoos. One is a kite shaped tattoo, which is for protection from the Amazigh tribe in Northern Africa. Another is a tattoo of a fly that symbolizes a fly. And another tattoo is, symbolizes a cockroach. And I was like, that's all this character. He's about survival. He wants to be protected. He's about being aware, like a fly is. A fly is aware of everything. And he's about survival, you know, being a cockroach. So she's like, great. Uh, that'll cost you one and a half hours in the makeup chair. (laughs) I was like, oh no, what have I done? So every day I'd have to come earlier than everyone else and sit in that chair for 90 minutes and just get dirt on me, so much dirt on me and put these fake tattoos on. And it's a choice that eventually I was like, oh man, I shouldn't have gone with this. But at the end of the day, it made him look so much more tough and authentic. And so I think it was the right choice, but my God, yeah, it, it did cost me some extra hours of sleep.
0: I'm sure every episode you got to wear long sleeves were a blessing. (laughs) Yes, which were very few in between, trust me. (laughs) As I was watching the show, I wrote down a couple of my favorite lines from the character, and this is going to be a little bit of inside baseball for anyone who hasn't seen it, but I don't care. One of them was, teeth don't work like that. Once they're out, they don't go back in. Another one was, I'll just take them to the brink of death. I won't go all the way. <laughs> and then one of my favorite lines, which I later found out was improvised by you, was, this is all a dream come back from episode six. Right. Talk to us a little bit about the importance and prevalence of improv in Our Flag Means Death and how that ties into working in an ensemble in general.
1: So I've been on shows where you have to say the lines exactly as it's written. For example, on Sunnyside, which was an NBC sitcom, it was very much the lines are written this way and that's the joke, that's the setup, that's the punchline. Do it this way or it won't work. And so I thought this would be similar with Our Flag Means Death. But from day one, Taika Waititi directed the pilot. And his way of directing was fascinating to me because you do a scene and he's like, okay, let's do the scene as written. And then you shoot that and then we do another take. And while you're doing the scene, he will start yelling suggestions. Okay, now go over there. Now do this. Now, now say this line. Now look at him and say that line again. Now now say that line again as you're stabbing this guy. <laughs> Try to find the, the, the comedic <laughs> moments within that. Something
0: about say this line as you're stabbing this guy out of context is so funny
1: <laughs> to me. <laughs> I, know, I know. So that's what he just opened it up for us. He just, boom, opened up our minds to, oh, we're allowed to play. We're allowed to discover moments together this is an ensemble where we all want to be able to express ourselves because at the end of the day that's why they cast us because of how different and unique all of our comedic timings and styles were and so based off that in the pilot the first episode we felt the freedom to improvise for the rest of the scenes we'd do the scenes as written and then we'd find some things or someone would throw a curveball at you and you'd have to respond in your in your character as improv and it just kept everything fresh, and there was a lot of giggling on stage. A lot of times where we couldn't keep a straight face, and somewhere out there, there's a blooper reel. I'm sure that that's just you know hopefully will be released one day. I'll just show how much fun it actually was just filming this.
0: Working in an ensemble, I imagine, and this is a <laughs> this is a hokey analogy I'm about to use, but it's a lot like a chemistry class, right? Not just because of the literal chemistry needed for an ensemble, but because if all of the elements don't go together perfectly. Things can go bad like really fast. Absolutely. The cast is just stacked. Taika, Reese, all your other co-stars. I mean, like even if you don't know the actors' names, you will have the experience of being like, hey, that's that guy from that thing and that person from that thing. Everyone comes from such a storied background. As a team, how'd you go about blending all those different personalities, all that talent together into something that felt so cohesive? Because I think for people who aren't familiar with the creative process or how you make a television show good or how you make a movie good, especially when there's so many actors, it is way more likely that a cast that is that large with that much personality, it's way more likely that it will fail than succeed. So, mm-hmm. how do you go about making it all work together so well?
1: Well, I think I give full credit to David Jenkins the creator and Allison Jones for that because they've worked with ensembles before in their previous shows. And Alison Jones, the casting director, has just such a good eye for ensemble work. I mean, she did The Office, you know, she did Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Parks and Recreation. Oh, those little things. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you know, like The Good Place. So she has a good eye for ensemble casting. Just how can someone compliment someone else? And how will this person mesh with that person? And how is everybody nice? And there's no egos and there's no, you know, people trying to sabotage one another, which is a huge risk when you do ensemble work, because there's always going to be somebody who wants more lines or wants more attention or wants to steal the scene or wants to ruin your moment, which I've been a part of in previous films and stuff. But with this show, Our Flag Means Death, I think we bonded immediately because the first thing they made us do was give us sword fighting training and sailing training. And we were terrible at both which was perfect for the show because we're supposed to be terrible pirates but just being able to see that hey we can embarrass uh, ourselves in front of one another and laugh about it and it's okay just made us all kind of relax that hey no one's trying to outshine one another we're supposed to be bad pirates we're supposed to be terrible at what we do and that just made everyone kind of relax into just giving them the confidence to be who they are and not have to prove themselves. And the fact that we could improvise also relaxed everybody because it's like, it gave everyone a chance to express themselves. And the number one lesson in improvising is listen and go with whatever someone's giving you. You have to be accepting to be a team player. And that just allowed us all to be team players for one another. And even through season two, there was no egos, there was no drama. It truly is an ensemble that's well-balanced. And again, I credit that to the creator and Alison Jones, the casting director.
0: You can really feel that that generosity of spirit that letting other people shine you know because that is an active choice that has to be cultivated on set and I can see it in your Instagram feed those don't look like hostage photos when you're standing next to your cast members <laughs> it looks like there's a, a a genuine friendship there you know which I imagine is born out of that setting aside of ego
1: no we all love one another and we're also happy for one another cuz this show like a lot of them have done previous things and and this show was kind of just Spreading positivity. You know how, like, Ted Lasso was the positivity we needed during the pandemic? Yeah. This show continued that trend of just a feel good show, you know, that gives a positive feeling after you've watched it. And we all knew we were being a part of something bigger than us, something that showed acceptance, something that showed search for identity, a search for family, which is a very Taika Waititi themed concept in all his things. And we also knew that it was about representation and being ambassadors for queer representation, representation of different body types of different, you know, skin types. And and so we all knew we were part of something bigger. And I think being that and being in that as a group just makes you appreciate one another more.
0: Yeah. And something I really appreciate about how our flag means death approaches that topic that you're talking about. And this is something I think you've mentioned in a previous interview that is so on point. It features so many characters from so many diverse backgrounds. And it doesn't shy away from confronting stereotypes or from talking about people's backgrounds. But I think what I love so much about its approach is that in many ways, even if those elements of a character are important, they are often incidental. Your character is not defined by his North Africanness. ness You happen to be from North Africa, but your character is way more than that. As We all are, right? Like we're not defined by our citizenship or our ethnicity or our background. We're defined by the traits (laughs) that make us who we are. And I love how Our Flag Means Death leans into that because it is ultimately the most natural way to do it. And yet it has been so long coming.
1: Right. And it's a shame that a lot of shows or movies that address these issues about identity or coming out or queerness or body types, backgrounds, ethnic, you know, identities They make it about that and the movie is about that or the movie or the TV show is just about that focus or the character is just dealing with that throughout the whole arc of the show. And David Jenkins was very clear from the beginning, the creator, that he just wanted these people to be that and move on with the story. Just kind of let the story continue. Let's not make the story about a person coming out as non-binary let them just be non-binary and let everyone accept that and move on, (laughs) you know, there's much more pirating to do. So that's what I really loved about the show is that it didn't just get stuck in those tropes, just made it about a bunch of misfits trying to find their identities and find a sense of belonging and without trying to just make it about their trauma.
0: Yeah. And as a quick kind of a side question, because this was just something that was going through my head as I was, Perusing your Instagram feed in preparation for this talk, you know, the show being on HBO and being as unbelievably popular as it is, what is it like to be known by so many people while also simultaneously being known, like capital K, known by so few? But what I mean by that is you'll regularly post like illustrations or drawings that people have made about Roach, right? Like, you know, watercolors and sketches and digital artwork across all different styles, like anime, classical, portraiture. And in a sense, you know, they're technically drawing Roach, but you know, Roach is you, you are Roach, they're drawing your face. You know, it's <laughs> cumulatively hundreds of hours of work and care and creativity poured into just recreating these flattering, stunning images of your likeness. So, mm. you know, speaking of <laughs> of
1: ego or keeping that in check, like, what does that feel like? Is that an adjustment? So... The show really blew up my social media following and attention. Before that, I was always posting like BTS things or like behind the scenes clips or photographs of shows or projects I've been a part of. But when this show took off, so many people found me on Instagram and Twitter because I was posting behind the scenes photos of the show just out of pure love for the show and appreciation of the cast and the creators and the crew. And so my following blew up and more and more fans started discovering the show. And then the fan art blew up. And it was kind of intimidating and exciting at the same time to experience hosting a photo. And instead of getting whatever, a hundred likes, people sharing it over 11,000 times. It was intimidating because like, oh, I have to be very mindful now of what I post because my social media is not just for me and my friends anymore. (laughs) There's a bunch of other people seeing it who I don't necessarily know, but who I know have good intentions because they follow the show. Right. So it had to make me more mindful of what I share. And at the same time, seeing how the show was received and appreciated and the fan art just, it wasn't an ego thing. It was more just a sense of someone loves this show so much that they are willing to draw me it is such a weird concept to me still to this day. Yeah. It was just moving to me that the show had touched someone so creatively in that way that it sparked creativity in someone. And at the end of the day, that's what you want to do as an ambassador of any show you're part of. Me, particularly in my life, I want to spark someone's creativity. I want to spark someone's expression. And to see that reflected back by the fans and to churn out this work so quickly and so well was, was more moving than it was ego stroking. I was in awe more than I was of, yeah, I deserve this. there was there was none of that <laughs> <laughs> No, I get you,
0: yeah, yeah. On the topic of North Africa, seeing as that is where Roach is from, let's talk about two of the North African countries that helped make you who you are today. You were born in New Mauritania.
1: Oh, good pronunciation. Thank
0: you. (laughs) You once said, quote, my mom is a black Muslim African woman who married a white Christian European man despite so much opposition, criticism, and discrimination, but they're together till this day. They're my heroes, end quote. So how did your parents meet and what makes them heroes to you?
1: So my mom was in Mauritania, which is a very obscure country. Nobody knows about it. It's massive. It's four times the size of Texas, but there's only four million people who live there because it's in the Sahara Desert. And so she was born and raised in Mauritania, black Muslim woman. And my dad was born in a small village in Holland called Maidenblick, which again is small town, very like conservative, Christian. And so he grew up in a very small world. but. He had this urge to travel and be of service abroad because he wanted to work, you know, as a social worker. I think what helped him kind of want to get out of his town is he was planning on marrying this girl, but because he was just a measly accountant and her father wanted someone of a higher ranking, he didn't approve of their marriage or didn't want them to marry one another. So she broke up with him and that made my dad want to leave. (laughs) So... He was like, I'm getting out of Holland. I'm going to explore the world and be of service and do social work outside of Holland. So he ended up in Africa. And the first time he was sent to Ivory Coast and he loved it so much that he was looking for another place he could go to. And someone proposed Mauritania. And he was like, sure, never heard of it, let's go. And so he went to Mauritania to do social work. And my mom at the time was volunteering at the same organization he was going to work for. And a mutual friend of my mom's and my dad's introduced them, and boom, these two worlds collided, as unlikely as it was. And from that, I was born. And I think what makes them my heroes is at the time, it was not seen as acceptable for a Muslim woman to marry a Christian man. And from my dad's side, for a white man to marry a black woman. It was kind of rebellious for them at the time, because they went against what the norm was, what tradition was, and they stood by their love. And I know in other parts of the world, it's like, what? (laughs) Of course, that should be totally fine. We don't think about it. Back in the days, in the 70s and 80s, it was taboo, you know, and it was not considered right. But they stood by their love and they followed through with their marriage. And they stayed true to themselves. My mom is still a practicing Muslim. A lot of the fear was, oh, she'll be converted to a Christian and my dad's going to change his ways and all this stuff. No, my dad is still who he is. My mom is still who she was when they married. And they still stood by their identities. They still stood by their morals and their beliefs and showed everybody that it's ridiculous that we put these boundaries and these tags on people to stop them from being who they are or from being together. And that was so inspiring to me and is still what I go by in my daily life, that I should never shy away from who I am or express who I am because of what other people will think.
0: Yes, in many ways, what your mother and father were proving is kind of what you as a person prove because you are so many hyphenates, right? Your mother was saying, I can be a Muslim and I can also do this thing. Your father says, I can be this and I can also do this. This idea that if we're one thing, that's all we can be, Or if we become something else, we lose something that we once were. It's like a a scarcity mindset rather than an abundance mindset. Like, I can be this, but I can also encompass more. And in many ways, you are the literal product of that ethos.
1: Well, that and also that they were able to enrich one another's lives. A lot of people are afraid of the word multicultural or diversity because they think that it will strip away their identity, their belongings, their. Morals, their way of life. But I'm living proof, and my parents are, and a lot of other kids who grew up multicultural are, that it is enriching. If anything, you learn more about one another's cultures and worlds that show you more about yourself, that inspire you to be more than what you are. And I only see it as an enriching, positive thing. And it's a shame that it's seen as a threat, you know, mixing cultures together, because And then what will I be, you know? And and then what will I have? There's plenty to go around. And at the end of the day, we're more alike than we are unalike.
0: Beyond what you've just said now about what your mother and father represent to you, what would you say... In terms of a, a quality or qualities that you've been given by your father? And what have you been given by your mother? What from each of them has helped you make you the man you are today?
1: <laughs> well, I owe my sense of humor a lot to my parents. Both of them are hilarious <laughs> in their own way. My dad has that dry Dutch humor the kind of sarcastic kind of Dutch humor. And my mom has the African vibrancy and physicality and acting things out. And so my comedy, if you ever watch my stand-up comedy, you see both of them in that. You see my physicality, you see my storytelling from my African side, and then you see the kind of snarkiness and (laughs) the kind of dryness here and there from the Dutch side. I think what I've learned from both are, like from my dad for sure is being of service. Being of service to others will get you much more fulfillment in your life. You know, he left his home, he left his town where he grew up in to go to Africa to a country he'd never been to before, a culture he had never encountered before and embraced it because he loved what he was doing, which was working for NGOs, non-governmental organizations to help with food and refugees and war crisis places. And he has always been someone who said that, you know, be of service, right? So get an education if you can, but never feel privileged. Use your privilege for the good of others. And so we were kept very humble by that. And from my mom, it's the same thing. It's very much be of service, but at the same time, don't dim your light for the sake of what other people will think. Don't sacrifice who you are to appease others. You know, you are given this skin color you are given this culture, you're given this identity, be proud of it. Be proud of who you are and don't shy away from trying so hard to belong because not everyone will accept you. Not everyone will like you. (laughs) But don't let that dim your light. And I still apply that every day to my stand-up comedy, my acting career, being a public figure.
0: Speaking of your father's service, at two years old, he got a job at an NGO in Ethiopia where you spent the next 16 years of your life. What was it like growing up as a third culture kid absorbing the distinct cultures of both your mother and father as well as
1: that of your adopted homeland Ethiopia? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, I love, I love, love, love Ethiopia. Cause for me, that's home in the sense of it's the country where I've lived the longest. I lived there from age two to eighteen. So all my formative years were in Ethiopia. And so for me, even though I'm a Dutch Mauritanian, you know, citizen. Ethiopia is also a third home because it's the country where I spent the longest time, where I made childhood friends for life, where I went through my teenage years, you know, and all the ups and downs that that comes with formed the basis of my identity in that country up to the age of 18. It's a place I love very much. It's a culture I embrace very much. But as with every third culture kid, when you are growing up in a place that you're not from and even growing up or being in the country you are from, but being from two different nationalities or cultures, you deal with being your identity. You deal with trying to belong, but not belonging because you'll always be considered an outsider. Unfortunately, I'm not black enough to be West African and I'm not white enough to be European. I do look Ethiopian, so that helps. <laughs> <laughs> or Indian, actually, like one of the only places in the world where no one looked at me like I was a tourist or an outsider was little India in Singapore. So I was like, hey, I could I could live here. So it's becoming more acceptable now, you know, but in the 80s, being a mixed kid and growing up in another country than where you're from, it was very much searching for identity and belonging and trying to feel like you belong, but never 100% belonging because you're always going to be the outsider because you're not 100% from there. You're not 100% integrated in the culture, in the language. You have an accent. You know, all those little things play a role. It's much more acceptable now. And being a third culture kid, that was not the term that existed back then. But now that gives us a sense of identity. But you will always be dealing with trying to fit in, trying to belong, not having a home, a country that you can call a home, 100% home. So for me, home is where my family is at. And I dealt with that sense of being an outsider till my adult years, till I was 18, 20. And then once I became 21, 22, I started to try to use it to my advantage through my stand-up comedy. And I applied being an outsider to my comedy. The advantage of being an outsider was I was able to see things clearer and watch things and be an observer. and take things in from a different perspective and applying that to my comedy or to my art suddenly made people go, oh, what an interesting insight or, oh, I didn't think about it that way. And so I ended up using it as a strength rather than seeing it as a weakness or a, a handicap.
0: The info I have here says that the last time
1: you were in Ethiopia was 21 years ago. Is that right? Correct. January twenty two thousand two. 2002. January 2002 was the last time I was there.
0: Yeah. I was just talking about this phenomenon with a friend a couple of weeks ago. The idea of like taking a picture of something versus experiencing it. You know, like if you go like on vacation and you take a photo of like this beautiful landscape, Mm. there's something so different about like being there in it. You're looking at the same mountain as you're showing the friend on your phone when you come back, but there's something so different there, right? Like showing a photo of a mountain or showing a photo of a statue to someone on your phone will never capture what you were experiencing while you were looking at it while you were there. So what is something about Ethiopia, you know, like whatever that might be for you, that's hard to capture in words or in a photograph that you miss the most?
1: (laughs) There's so much the food, obviously, but thank God there's little Ethiopia here in Los Angeles that I can go every day and just experience those spices and those aromats and those flavors of home. And I think... The smell of Ethiopia and the nature around you, the smell comes from the nature, the smell comes from the eucalyptus trees, it comes from the dry sands, the earth when it's wet and rains, the concrete when it's freshly made, the you know marketplaces, the spices, the herbs, the grass from school, the fields, it's just those memories are so ingrained in me that sometimes I just, I smell them in my dreams. You know, there's so, there's things that are, it's not palpable anywhere else in the world. There are a few times where I walk by a eucalyptus tree and I'm like, oh yeah, this reminds me of home. Or as soon as it rains and the earth has that rich smell, I'm like, oh, this, this reminds me of home. It's hard to encapsulate that or share it with another person. And I think that's what I miss the most is the unique sense that I had waking up every day, going to bed every day for 18 years. It's something that that reminds me so much of home and that I haven't had for, smelled for 20 plus years. That is like, yeah, that's, I think, something I wish I could share with someone through a photograph with smell-induced apps.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A scratch and sniff photograph, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That, that that phrase you just used, Samba, the sense you smell in your dreams, that's such an evocative phrase. There really is something about smell, right? About aroma, about our sense of smell that acts like a time machine in a way that no other sense does, right?
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. A smell, it stays with you forever. And, and when you smell something again, it Triggers a memory and it's it unlocks a part of your brain that's like oh I remember and suddenly you see the vision of where you smelt it or which person it reminds you of or what place you were when you had that and it is it's a, a strong 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 one of our strongest senses yes sight I love <laughs> audio I love
0: <laughs> a lot of positives about sight and audio yeah
1: <laughs> yes yeah no and taste I'm a, I'm a cook I love taste yeah but my God yeah smell is like yeah I did not know I'd give that answer when you asked me that question about Ethiopia. I'm sure my family's going to laugh at me. Is like, smell? That's that's the thing you said? The smell of Ethiopia? What about the, <laughs> the people and the culture and the, your, your, your schoolmates? And no, it's so funny that that came up to me. It's just, I think that's what hit me the most, yeah. Well, in so many ways, smell is the culmination
0: of such a multitude of factors that isolated do not represent the whole, right? It's like you can probably go to a gathering of Ethiopian people here in America, and right, and that's going to evoke some of the culture that you experienced growing up, or you can eat the food at a restaurant, or you can cook it at home. That's going to evoke some of it. You know, You were listing half a dozen, a dozen different things that all came together simultaneously, the trees, the people, the restaurants, the pavement, all those different things that you can't really transport over to America holistically to recreate that thing. So to me, when you give that answer, it's, yes, smells, quote unquote, but it is so much larger than that. You're trying to capture something bigger than that. But I think that's the best way to do it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I try to. It's hard. You get bits and pieces of it. Like you say, when you go to Little Ethiopia or you have the food or they burn the incense or they make the coffee or when a truck here in Los Angeles has a bunch of pollution coming out of it, you're like, ah, I remember this. <laughs> you know, so it's, yeah, it, it, the overall package is I think what I missed the most. Well,
0: speaking of going back in time and actually speaking of 21 years, you know, you recently celebrated your 40th birthday on February 1st. So happy belated. Thank you. And you celebrated your 21st stand-up comedy birthday last year on October 13th, 2022. So, Walk us through how you got your start at that open mic night at your local college bar in Holland.
1: (laughs) So after leaving Ethiopia, I went to Holland. I went to this college called the University College Utrecht, which was an international English speaking college. I was just there for a year before going to study theater, but I could only study theater in Dutch. So I said, okay, let me just go for a year to this college to kind of do a transition phase. And it was English speaking international students from all over the world and i think being in holland after living in ethiopia for 18 years almost i had so much to say and so much inside me that wanted to come out but i didn't know how i knew that i was eventually going to study acting and drama but i couldn't wait a year so the college said that they had a open mic night and i was like okay i'm going to do an acting monologue i suppose let me write some ideas down of what i want to do or say and so I was starting to write things down as an actor's monologue. And then I go on the stage that night. I'm nervous because it's performing. There's a microphone on stage and the audience is there watching from this bar. And so I grab the mic and I start doing my monologue, but then people start laughing intermittently. And I was like, oh, this is going well. This monologue is funny. I guess. And so people laugh, 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 laugh. And you know, it lasted seven minutes. And then I was done. And someone came up to me and said, Oh man, that was hilarious, bro. How how long have you been doing stand-up comedy? And I was like, stand-up comedy? How dare you? This was a monologue. <laughs> I'm an actor. <laughs> and they're like, no, dude, that's basically what you're doing is stand-up. So I was thinking about it and I was like, hey, I remember growing up and watching Eddie Murphy and Bill Cosby himself, which was the the only stand-up VHS we had at the time, and Richard Pryor. And I remember loving that art form, being on stage with a microphone, telling stories and people laughing. And I was very shy. I was a very shy person, I think, because of being considered such an outsider. I kind of did not express myself as much growing up. But in Holland, no one knew me. And... I felt like I could recreate myself without, you know, being the outsider in that sense that I grew up at that feeling I grew up with. I had a fresh slate to kind of do something new and express myself. So I started approaching it as I guess I can do stand-up comedy. And I'd never seen myself as a comedian. But now when I ask my mom and my dad, like, how was I growing up? They're like, oh, in the family, you were the comedian always. You were always trying to get the attention of the camera if we were filming, or you're always trying to tell a joke, or you're always trying to make people laugh. It's always been a part of you. But I was super shy in Ethiopia, and I don't think I was able to do that there. But moving to another country and having a clean slate as it was just gave me the confidence to go for it. So that bar night, I'll never forget. And that's when I started stand-up comedy. And then I've been doing it ever since. So what, 22 years almost.
0: You alluded to this earlier, but in one interview, you said, quote, the Dutch language isn't made for humor or romance for that matter, end quote. (laughs) And it's also your fourth language after French, English, and Amharic. That seems like a three-pronged challenge, right? Like learning how to become a stand-up comedian at 18, doing so in your fourth language, and performing in a language that, quote, isn't made for humor. So, (laughs) right, like, it's not just you deciding to become a stand-up comedian, it's you doing it on, like, extra hard mode.
1: Yeah, it was not easy. It was, I got physically ill, I think, a few times. It's just, it was so hard because I started in English, you know, I started doing stand-up comedy in English, and English is my best language, first language, I dream in English. So my thoughts come to me in English, so I I would write them down, memorize them, do the act, and then my stand-up comedy career was going great at the college, and eventually someone's like hey man but if you want a career in holland you really got to start doing your stand up in dutch and i was like ah man cuz the dutch language is just it's exhausting i mean good morning is morgen how are you is hoe gaat het good is goed by the time you've answered morning greeting you you're, you're flamed out with you know three words it's an exhausting language yeah. <laughs> Really rolls off the tongue.
0: And by the way, just based on what you just said, you 100 percent have to do a sequel to that ordering at an Ethiopian restaurant (laughs) sketch. You have to do some kind of crossover episode (laughs) between the woman taking the Ethiopian order
1: and a Dutch person trying to order it. Basically, (laughs) and ordering it in Dutch. Oh God. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. So I knew I had to learn the language eventually. And so I I had I had some basis of the language because my dad was Dutch and all that, but I learned it fully, went to a theater school, which was only taught in Dutch. So that helped. And when I started deciding to really go for my career as a stand-up comedian in Holland, I started writing my jokes in English. And then having to translate them in Dutch was a nightmare because you can't translate some things from English to Dutch. Dutch is a very rough, clunky language. So what that forced me to do was become physical. And that's where my mom's humor started coming in, which was being a physical comedian, being a storyteller. But acting out something and using my body to do something, which would help me bring the joke across without relying too much on the language and on the language barrier. And till this day, I'm considered a physical comedian, even though I'm fluent in Dutch now and I've done three Dutch comedy specials. I'm still a physical comedian because of that. Because at the beginning, I was like, I can't tell this joke. I can't translate this joke. So let me just act it out. And that helped.
0: Yeah, I can totally see that. I mean, I think it's one of the same reasons why you can go back and watch some of the silent Charlie Chaplin films and they're still hilarious. Or, you know, like I remember when Kung Fu Hustle came out in my hometown of Pleasanton, right? And that's, you know, completely in, I want to say either Cantonese or Mandarin if subtitled, but it was amazing. I was in this theater of predominantly, you know, white American people I mean, people were losing their minds they were laughing so much. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that it is such a physical comedy, right? There's something truly universal about physical comedy.
1: Well, if 70% of communication is body language, that just goes to show, you know, and I've had people sit in the audience who don't speak Dutch, watch my show and go, I was laughing hysterically. I was crying, you know, because of <laughs> your physicality. And I like, I kind of understood what you were saying. So it's a great tool to have as an artist and to just know how to use your body and how to express yourself using your body. And I, till this day, when I come up with a joke, I'm walking around my neighborhood and I come up with an idea. I immediately go, how can I physicalize it? Who is this character? How can I give him a voice? What's his action? What does he sound like? How can I make this funnier using my body?
0: Yeah. I was thinking about how you would go about translating across languages. You have this joke about the U S immigration system, which for obvious reasons, doesn't work necessarily everywhere you tell it, but there's a play on words that you have in that bit, a riff on American soil and soiling oneself. And that joke kills, (laughs) but it requires a fundamental understanding of English and how soil means two entirely different things while sounding the same both ways. The joke doesn't work if the wordplay isn't there. So yeah, I would imagine it's hard to translate. A joke like that from one language to the other, because you have to figure out how to carry over the color and flavor of the joke. Absolutely. Translate the localized idioms with or without the physicality. Are there jokes that you can actually translate from one culture to the other, or do you have to start fresh?
1: You can if the punchline is not a wordplay. There's also one joke, for example, where you know, I, I joke about being a very positive person and that I got fired because I was considered too positive. Someone complained that I was, that I was too happy. <laughs> and my boss asked me, why are you so happy all the time? And I said, I can't help it. My blood type is B positive. That's the joke in English. And so when I was doing my comedy special in Holland and having to do that bit in Dutch, it doesn't translate. You know, B positive doesn't go, you can't say be positief" doesn't mean being positive in Dutch. <laughs> so I suddenly just had to make the boss and the part-time job an English part-time job. So that we'd speak English in that moment to one another. And then the joke did translate in the Dutch audience who, you know, Dutch people are fluent in English as well, would understand the punchline. So it it becomes tricky when it's a wordplay, but everything else that's more physical, like I talked about my first time going paintballing and getting hit by a paintball and what that did to my body. That's a good one. You know, but that translates everywhere in the world.
0: (laughs) Just the sounds you were making, like a dying hyena. It was was so funny, man. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> so funny. So, thank you. No, so that works everywhere. It just, that, that's one of those that's like, so I try to come up with jokes that are universal, stories that are universal. And I've been lucky enough to perform in many, many different countries and continents. And humor translates, especially physical humor.
0: Yeah. You know, you were, as you said, a little out of place in Ethiopia because of your background, your cultural background. Then you were a newcomer again in Holland and the Netherlands. And then, again, in 2011, you moved to America. It's kind of like you're just addicted to being an outsider, I suppose. You were once asked if your transition to Hollywood has been a smooth one. And you said, quote, (laughs) anybody who moves to LA would tell you no. Anybody who moves to America would tell you hell no. Anybody who is half black, half white, half African, half European, half Muslim, half Christian would tell you hell no. So, (laughs) I'd love for you to explore a little bit about having to start again, maybe from scratch with your reputation as a stand-up comedian. I imagine not a lot of that cachet translates from Mm -mm. the Netherlands to Hollywood. So walk us through having to reboot that and what that was like.
1: Yeah. So in Holland, I had like a stellar career. Like I had won a big national competition, the biggest national comedy competition, which launched my career to do a bunch of comedy specials, a bunch of TV shows, a film. And my comedy specials were aired on Dutch national TV and all that. So I was like, oh, I'm somebody in Holland. But when I moved to LA, and I moved to LA because I wanted to work in English because doing everything in Dutch was exhausting. And I wanted to just be able to reach a more global market. None of that counted. None of my credits counted. I could tell people I was this big deal in Holland and they'd be like, so? (laughs) So I really had to start from scratch here. I remember I wasn't able to even go to the comedy clubs to perform stand-up comedy. Like I had to wait in line on a Tuesday afternoon outside in the hot sun and they'd only choose 15 people at the comedy store or the Laugh Factory or the Improv. And it was frustrating to have to start again, but I knew that I had to because, no, yeah, to be fair, no one knows me and the only way I can prove myself is on that stage. So when I finally had the opportunity to perform at the comedy store, I took part in this competition called March Comedy Madness at the time. And it was basically you have 64 comedians and they all compete against one another, like in March Madness, and then the audience votes who goes to the next round. And then it boils down to the final two comedians and they go head to head on stage. And I did that at the Comedy Store and I ended up winning the March Madness out of 64 comedians. During the final, the talent manager at the time of the Comedy Store saw me perform and walked up to me and went, hey, man, you're good. I'd like you to perform here every week. You know, just call in on Monday and we'll tell you which day you can perform. And you'll do six minutes each time. I was like, perfect. That was my way in. So I did that for a couple of years at the comedy store, but it's hard to stand out as a comedian in America because, in Los Angeles, I should say, because there's so many more comedians than there are in Holland. (laughs) Holland is a tiny country, there's 17 million people, which is the size of larger LA County. And in Holland, there's probably maybe a hundred stand-up comedians out of those 17 million. Oh, wow. In Los Angeles, there's at least 10,000 stand-up comics in Los Angeles, at least. And so to stand out is hard unless you know what your humor is, what your identity is and what separates you from everyone else. Yeah. So it took a second to kind of readjust myself to be like, okay, I can't just base myself on physical humor because that's not going to work here in America. People want you to be able to tell stories and say something as well. So my humor changed and it became more physical, yes, still. But at the same time, talking about my cultural background and my identity crisis and applying that to American culture. And that clicked with people and made me kind of stand out as the high energy, multicultural, physical, fun, positive comedian. And until this day, that's, I've calmed down a bit because I'm 40 and I can't do a split anymore, <laughs> but I'm still high energy, positive, upbeat, and definitely always talking about multiculturality, diversity, and applying that to some American norms in the culture. Yeah. But it took a
0: while. I, I can imagine. To expand a bit on what you were just saying, it's like for most of its history until relatively recently, you know, America has been to be reductive, has been pretty much a black or white country, right? And and this was reflected in stand-up comedy as well. There were quote-unquote white comics and quote-unquote black comics, and it was pretty common until relatively recently, like shockingly recently, for stand-up to be racially segmented in this way. The jokes often reflect this reality, like black comics, and when I say black here, I'm talking about the American ethnicity commonly known as ADOS, or American Descendants of Slaves, played to largely black audiences and tailored their humor accordingly playing on the cultural and environmental touchstones that would resonate with those audiences, watching some of Chris Rock's biggest specials from the nineties, like bring the pain show how culturally specific those jokes were. But, you know, America's demographics have changed considerably since, you know, even the mid nineties with the foreign born population pretty much doubling as a, you know, in your words, half black, half white, half African, half European, <laughs> half Muslim, half Christian comedian. <laughs> Trevor Noah talked a lot about this in his first couple stand-up specials, right? Like he, he is black and yet he is not black in the American sense. Like there's a way that he is able to talk about that experience and yet provide an outsider's perspective on it. Right. I guess my larger question here, Samba is like, as you're trying to channel your perspective into comedy that resonates with an American audience, what have you learned about kind of our interesting multicultural American experiment and your perspective on it? (laughs) Well, it's a large question. I know (laughs) it's a large question,
1: but no, uh, Trevor Noah broke down a lot of barriers and doors because of the exposure he had. And that helped a lot with just kind of accepting that there's different kinds of Black identities and different kind of international identities that can be accepted in America. And I think the main thing for me, the main difference for me moving from Holland was where stand-up comedy was seen more as an Art form in the sense that it was like a theater going experience. Like you buy a theater ticket, you sit in the theater seat in this beautiful 16th century theater, and you watch a stand up comedian tell banana jokes or whatever. That's art, right? That's like a (laughs) night out. It's like, really, like, wow, I went to the theater to watch this comedy show. Yeah. And in America, it's like, oh, we're in a bar or, oh, we're in a comedy club, and each comedian will just perform for what, 10, 15 minutes. And I get a bunch of them in one night and a couple of drinks to drink minimum, at least (laughs) I have to pay for. And boom, you know, so when Americans go out to a stand-up comedy show, they go out to laugh. They go out for a good time. So generally speaking, they are in a better mood Mm. than they are in Holland, where it's like, I'm going to the theater and I'm going to learn something today, (laughs) you know, whereas in America it's like, make me laugh, you know, let's go. So the joke intensity is way higher. You have to get at least three laughs a minute if you can. Or your punchline better be worth the big laugh or people won't like you. So I learned that people want to be satisfied quicker with either your humor or your information that you're giving, Mm. but they do not want to be lectured because they are all searching for their identity and they all have their norms and values. So the only way you can bring a new perspective to an American audience is not by pointing the finger and be like, you guys do this and you guys, it's really the we experience. Like have you guys ever experienced, you know, going through immigration, for example. Right. And is it just me or, you know, and calling them in, calling them in, making them a part of your story, giving the we identity and not me versus you identity. And also the teaching or the point For example, the immigration joke that you were talking about, going through American immigration, how that always makes me soil myself (laughs) because of how intimidating they are. It's a funny situation, but at the same time, what it teaches us is that, yeah, there is an injustice done to immigrants or how they're seen or how they're perceived just because of how they look or whatever, going through the border. And if you package that in a joke, if you package that in a fun bit, people are much more accepting to you and much more accepting of the lesson. Because they don't feel that you lectured them into it, but that you inspired them to glean from that. They do not want to be underestimated. They do not want to be made to feel dumb or criticized directly. You really have to have a creative way about it, of making it an inclusive thing. We, not me versus you. Right.
0: Yeah, in some ways, it's like putting a bit of medicine in a cookie. (laughs) And in other ways, it's in the way that you deliver the joke. It's assuming that they agree with you as you tell it, right? So even if they might not agree with you, that assumption that they do allows them to be like, oh, okay, I I see the point he's making, as opposed to having them become defensive, which is automatically going to turn them off from laughing at your joke.
1: Yeah. And I mean, in general, they always say 30% of the audience is not going to like you. (laughs) Just accept that and move on. (laughs) So you have to know that at least 30%, at least one corner of the room is is not going to go with your jokes, but you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for the others who are listening. And if anything, listening is huge because Dutch audiences, they do not laugh loudly or out loud. Mm. They, they do, but it, not as much as American audiences, but I have done shows in Holland where it's been silent for 80 minutes. Oh. Me just being on that stage, telling my <laughs> jokes, doing my doing my monkey dance for 80 minutes. God. To silence. And then being devastated and kind of like halfway through the show going, I, I'm just going to quit. I'm just going to stop performing this because clearly they're not having fun. But the show's theme is about not giving up. So if I do that, then what am I actually talking about? <laughs> so going through that for 80 minutes and then the lights go out and then boom, standing ovation, thunderous applause and wow! confusion. And then someone coming up to me and saying, that was the funniest thing I've ever seen. And I'm like, why, why didn't you laugh? Why didn't you make noise and just kind of like, tell me, show me that you're enjoying it. They're like, oh, we didn't want to interrupt you. Uh-huh. They were trying to be polite. They're being polite. And so they're a listening audience. They're, they're taking it in. They're seeing it as an art form. And so what I learned from Holland is that even if there's silence, just go forward with your show because Mm. at the end of the day, people are listening. And yes, if you get the laughter, that's encouraging. But despite 30% of the audience not going with you, the rest are listening. So just trust that and bring across your joke, bring across your message, bring across your humor. And Americans really, really appreciate authenticity and someone who stays true to themselves. And in Los Angeles, anyway, that's what I learned is that there's a true appreciation for Nowadays, people who are voicing themselves authentically, yeah, people are searching for authenticity. Yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Those those cultural differences can be shocking. I did a two week gig in Stockholm, Sweden, and I was there for a couple of weeks. And while I happened to be there, Paul McCartney happened to be performing at a you know a ten thousand plus seat stadium there. Wow! And so on a whim, my coworker and I were just like, why don't we go see Paul? Paul McCartney while we're here in Stockholm, Sweden. Yeah. And we went and a couple things stood out to me. The first one was that like, I've just never seen that large of a group of people that orderly ever before in my life. Like the way that they were just filing (laughs) in and out to their seats with like no shoving. Like it, it just almost seemed automated. And then secondly, for like the first like two songs that McCartney was performing, everyone, I mean, talking like a 20,000 seater, Hmm. everyone was just seated and everyone was just basically completely silent. And at some point, like after the second song, McCartney was like getting visibly agitated and he was like, I need everyone to stand up. He's like, this is a concert. Yeah. And finally, like everyone (laughs) slowly started to stand up and you could tell they kind of didn't want to, but you know, they wanted to do the right thing for McCartney. And I felt so relieved when I could stand up and start clapping and, and whatever, because the feeling that I was getting before that, it was like, I want to blend in, so I'm just going to sit here. But it was a weird experience.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what a Dodge audience would do. And to the point where I was performing, I was touring around with my show, my third special. And I was going to all these remote villages where people were, like you say, very orderly, seated and not laughing. But my American wife was in the audience and she burst out laughing at one of my jokes and was the only one who laughed out loud. And everyone turned to her like, what is this crazy American doing right now? she's exp- I know, interrupting him with her laughter. But it takes that to then make everyone feel at ease and go, oh, we can express ourselves. Oh, this is a safe space to kind of enjoy ourselves. Mm. But it's so funny that you experienced that because that's exactly that orderly kind of, we're at a art concert, we're watching art. Let us enjoy this art. Do not make us interact with you. <laughs> There's that mentality there for sure in like those Nordic, Scandinavian-ish countries.
0: Yeah, yeah, speaking of blending in or standing out and just in, the, in those differences, you mentioned earlier about how when you're in Mauritania, you know, you don't look full Mauritanian and, and you never obviously visibly blended in in the Netherlands because the Dutch are a lighter shade of pale. And then you mentioned how when you were in Little India in Singapore, like that was the first time you noticed after a few minutes, oh, like no one's giving me a second glance, like no one is thinking that I don't belong here. What was that feeling like? Especially because you're technically blending in somewhere with people that you don't share a heritage with.
1: No. That's got to be weird. (laughs) It is. Because then they immediately assume you can speak the language when you're made to order whatever, a a dosa. (laughs) So it was a double feeling again, because it was like, I'm here, like no one's giving me, like you say, a second glance. I am at ease because everywhere I go, usually in those countries, in Mauritania, And it's better now because they're more used to, you know, multicultural people, people from different ethnicities. And especially here in Los Angeles now, it's so mixed that I'm getting that feeling more and more now, like I did in that little India (laughs) neighborhood in Singapore, where I can just be myself and people won't question. i was like, okay, he's clearly whatever this, or he's mixed or whatever, it's fine. But 20 plus years ago, it was just nice to have that feeling of "Ah, no eyes on me, you know, like no judgment, no speculation, no threat, you know, because when you're seen as an outsider, the first thing people go to is a threat. Mm. You know, I've had women grab their purses and bags. I've had people I walk behind, cross the street and I'm tall. So I immediately catch up with whoever's in front of me. And that's always terrifying to the person. I feel bad for whoever's walking in front of me. I do, (laughs) but I can't help it. I'm tall. But for the first time, there was no feeling of I'm a threat and that was lovely. Yeah. You know, because it's so hard to feel that when you've been considered an outsider all, your whole life. Yeah.
0: I'm half Irish, half Armenian, and I've had Orthodox Jews come up to me speaking Yiddish <laughs> and, and Iranian grandmothers attempt to communicate with me in Farsi. And <laughs> even though I shouldn't feel guilty about not speaking those languages, I always feel like I'm letting them down somehow.
1: <laughs> I know it is. There's a part of you that wants to be like, oh man, I wish, thank you for seeing me as one of you. But ah. like, I've had Somalians walk up to me and go, bla, 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 and I'm like, ah, bro, I swear, I wish I could. Yeah. Oh man. But yeah, I know the feeling. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'd love to briefly touch on Side, in which you played the first Ethiopian character ever in a sitcom, a heart surgeon turned cab driver named Hakeem. What Parts of your Ethiopian cultural background did you infuse into that character? And did you feel any sort of additional pressure portraying him, seeing as
1: you are, although very, I'm sure, culturally Ethiopian, having grown up there, not ethnically Ethiopian yourself? Originally, they wanted the character to be Somalian. And I was honest up front. I went to the casting director, Alison Jones, and I said, during my audition, I said, listen, I'm not Somalian, but I grew up in Ethiopia for 18 years of my life. And for me, that's a place I consider home. And I'm very familiar with that culture. Can I portray him as that? And she said, absolutely. So I did that and they loved it, like Mike Schur and all the other creators of the show. They really enjoyed that take on him because I was doing a light Ethiopian accent. And once I booked the show, again, it came down to the costumes, but they really liked what I wore in the audition because I dressed as, because he's a cab driver, I dressed as how our driver in Ethiopia dressed and how I knew how certain like Ethiopian colleagues dressed who were drivers and I know it sounds fancy that we had a driver in Ethiopia but to be honest with you everyone has a driver in Ethiopia <laughs> everyone has a maid in Ethiopia it's just the way of life there like you give each other jobs and you help each other out so I knew how to dress to look, The part and also how I dressed in the audition is how they carried through the look of the character with the glasses and the beige jacket and the shoes that he's trying to keep good. There's only one pair of shoes that he's trying to keep good. And that for me just grounded me in, okay, I know who this person is. And secondly, the Ethiopian community was really supportive online. Once they found out that during the show, the pilot, I had the Ethiopian flag in my cab Ethiopian music was playing in my cab in the scene with Cal Penn and that I would say Ethiopian words in certain episodes. And they really appreciated that online and it felt really good to feel seen and that they'd share clips and that they'd promote the show and be proud of me. And I felt really honored to represent a culture that has been so significant to me in my life and to be the first, I mean, there's been Ethiopian actors on shows before, but there's never been a truly Ethiopian character on a sitcom. Someone pointed that out to me. I I didn't come up with that. And I was like, oh, really? That's amazing. So it just doubled down on the honor part. And yes, the responsibility of being truthful, being authentic and giving a few shout outs here and there by speaking Ethiopian a few lines or doing something that was significant to that community or that the community would recognize.
0: Imbuing your work with a sense of authenticity seems to be a real through line. I remember reading something about how much pride and joy you felt giving that sense of authenticity, to even something like Battlefield Five, which you wrote for.
1: Yeah, I think I get that from my parents. Like I said, I can only be myself. And more and more, I want things to represent people as they are or cultures as they are done by people who are very familiar with those cultures or those identities. So for Battlefield Five, for example a very good director, a friend of mine, Tom Keegan, who directed a bunch of different video games. I've worked with him before. He sent me the script for Battlefield Fight. He's like, hey, Samba, this is one of the stories for this war game. It's about World War II, about the Senegalese soldiers or West African soldiers who fought for the French. Do you mind just taking a look at it, seeing what you think? Because he had an instinct that it was not authentic. So I read it and I got back to him immediately. I said, okay, Tom, yeah, to be honest with you, this is very, not to do a pun on the word, but it's very whitewashed. It's very light on what actually happened. And it's not the way these characters would speak to one another. It's not representing the culture. If you really want authenticity, I would say this, I'd do this, I'd have this. And he was so excited by my thoughts that he brought me on board on the writing team. And the writers invited me to Sweden where we were filming the motion capture bit of the game. And I was there able to make sure that the way the soldiers, the African soldiers spoke to one another was authentic with the accent, with the little chemistry bits, with some of the greetings, how they would talk to one another out of respect, but also jesting with one another. And also story-wise, how historically, even though these soldiers fought for the French and won battles for the French, their history was erased. They were erased from history. They were erased from photographs. They were even not allowed to march down the Champs-Élysées in Paris after the French victory march. Black soldiers were not allowed to march with the French soldiers. So in our history books, we're never shown these African soldiers who fought for the French. And my Mauritanian grandfather fought for them. So I knew immediately what the true story was and how these soldiers were not recognized. And I pushed for it. And I told Tom, if you really want authenticity, you have to tell this story. You have to show that these people were erased from history, which would just give this chapter of the video game a whole other depth and dimension. And the creators of the game and EA games and all the people who worked in Sweden with Battlefield Five were so gracious to include that and take a chance on that and you know do something that was not really shown in many war video games. And it just gave a whole load of authenticity and depth and power to that chapter of the game. And uh, that's something I'm so proud of till this day because I've not seen it done before. And now you see it more and more with video games that they're trying to stay true to certain historical stories and authentic representation. And I love that we did that with Battlefield Five.
0: I want to briefly circle back to our flag means death before we start to wind down. A decent chunk of your Instagram feed is you presenting rather decadent looking cupcakes to your fellow cast members. In in fact... (laughs) I was watching an interview with Leslie Jones and she said that she once cursed you out over how delicious the chocolate cupcakes you brought to set were. And your 40 orange glaze cake adapted from the recipe Roche prepares on the show went kind of viral online. So what first got you into baking and and what does it mean to you, right? Because I feel like there's a deeper meaning there.
1: I love baking. I think I got it from my mom because she was the baker and the cook in the family and once I left home, I was missing her food and her desserts and so I kept asking for some recipes and some recipes and I started baking when I was out on my own really here in Los Angeles. And what it did was it just put me in a zone where I could be calm, almost like a meditation. It was something that I loved just looking up a recipe and following it and doing the thing, and then maybe adding a bit of my own identity to it. And then creating something that I could share with everyone and that people can visibly enjoy in front of me and that I could also savor and enjoy. And I think it's a practice that just relaxes me. It gets me out of my head. And I truly love creating something that someone can eat (laughs) and visibly enjoy. And so I do, I torture everyone on sets that I work with, with, treats to the point where they curse me out. So like you say, Leslie Jones cussed me out because she kept talking about this cupcake that she remembers having, but she couldn't quite describe it. And I was like, is it this? And she's like, no. I was like, is it this texture? She's like, no. So I just went home and I kind of just did my thing and I brought the cupcakes to set. And she just lashed out at me like you, I'm not going to swear on your podcast, but there was a lot of, there was a lot of cuss words and just, you know, cursing me out because she loved them so much. and. That just brings me joy, you know, to create something that either sparks a memory in someone's mind, or takes them somewhere, or makes them like enjoy their cake. Like Christian Nairn, who plays Wee John in our *Flag Me's Death*, he played Hodor in *Game of Thrones*. That's where you might recognize him from. He kept talking about Black Forest cake, but he didn't want a whole Black Forest cake for his birthday, and I was like, "Okay, no worries, I got you." So I made him Black Forest cupcakes, which I had never made, but I kind of improvised the recipe based off different recipes, and just watching him eat that and enjoy that as the whole bar embarrassed him by singing happy birthday. It was just one of those things that they bring me joy, you know? So baking is is my meditation.
0: Yeah, I can't bake myself. I mean, I've, I've never tried, but I do a bit of basic cooking. And I love cooking for my girlfriend more than I enjoy cooking for myself. Because for me, cooking for her takes on like a, a greater significance because the finished product goes from being a noun to a verb, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Like the meal becomes an act in and of itself, you know?
1: Right. And that's just the best part for me is presenting it, sharing it, and people enjoying it. And uh, you had mentioned the 40 orange cake. Beautiful looking cake, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. So we only talk about it in the show and our flag means death. We mentioned a cake that was made out of 40 oranges. And so last year at Easter, I was like, let me just make it and see what it would look like. So I baked it and it looked stunning and it tasted great. And I posted a photo of it on on Instagram and the fans demanded the recipe. (laughs) It was like, no question, like we need the recipe. So I shared the recipe and I did not know that more than 4,000 versions of the cake have been baked to this day by fans from all over the world, all over the world. And each of them unique and different. And what it did was it allowed everyone to kind of express their own creativity and identity through a recipe, through a cake. And at the end of the day, that's what I want. Like I said, I want to spark creativity in someone. I want to spark someone to express their authenticity, their identity. And I thought I would do that through my acting and my stand-up comedy. Little did I know, it'd be through an orange cake (laughs) that that, that would happen as well. So that was beautiful to see. You know, circling
0: back to something you said about how you appreciate and how you absorb the fan drawings that you see of Roach, you know, and what they mean to you, it seems to me like you accept them and absorb them the same way that you like to bake for others, right? Like you understand the meaning of what that drawing represents in the same way that the way that you bake a cupcake for a cast member represents more than the cupcake itself.
1: Absolutely. It's a, it's an expression of creativity that you have to appreciate. Like someone once told me like Samba, once you, you know, become more known as a comedian after your show, give time to people who want to give their feedback because they sat and listened to you for 90 minutes and they want to share what that means to you. And it's their time to share now. So never turn someone away from them expressing their creativity or themselves to you. And I carry that with me through this day. So the same way people have watched Our Flag Means Death, them then drawing some fan art and sharing it with me. I then immediately share it on my stories when I see them and on my Instagram when I see them because that's their response, their creative response after watching something that I was a part of creatively. And it's just honoring creativity. It's honoring self-expression. And there's something gracious about that. You know, even if it's a stick figure, someone put time into trying to capture something and express themselves creatively. And it doesn't matter what the quality is, it could be a child's drawing. It's still an expression that was sparked by something that I was a part of, or something that I did or something that I said. And that's just moving. And that's the highest form of praise, I think, or honor is just sharing someone's work and creativity because of something you did.
0: Two more questions. The second to last one requires a little bit of runway, but I just want to recap your background for our audience. So, a Dutch father, a Mauritanian mother, a childhood in Ethiopia, a young adulthood in the Netherlands, four languages, a successful stand-up comedy career in your fourth language and an especially difficult one for comedy, selling out shows to crowds of people who mostly didn't share your cultural background, becoming an immigrant a third time here at 28 in America, starting your comedy career over again in English, you've played an Ethiopian on one TV show, a South Asian in a movie, and now an 18th century North African pirate of nebulous origins. You traveled across three continents to get to where you are today. So this is all to say, Samba, you have viewed the world from so many angles, through so many lenses, that you have a kind of perspective on both humanity and yourself that many of us don't. So what have you learned about both? What have you learned about humanity? And what have you learned about yourself in this process?
1: (laughs) Well, thank you for saying all that, Damn. I need to write a book. (laughs) (laughs) I always consider myself fortunate for my cultural background and the way I was raised and the way my journey has led me to where I am today. Because at the end of the day, it shows me how petty labels are, how petty things we use to divide ourselves are, words, labels, because at the end of the day, we're all someone's son, someone's daughter, someone's mom, someone's dad, someone's cousin, someone's nephew, someone's lover, someone's enemy. And we will always be human at the end of the day. And that's what separates us. Like my African grandfather used to say, we all have nine holes in our body. (laughs) And it doesn't matter where you come from or what you do. It doesn't matter if you're an executive producer, the president, or a homeless man. We all have nine holes in our body. And I think that's what I learned the most is that there is so much more that we can connect to And that is similar for all of us than what we think divides us. Yes, there are religious differences. Yes, there are cultural differences, language differences. Those are all expressions of us. The one thing that ties us all together is our desire. Everyone desires peace. Everyone desires love. Everyone desires unity as much as we don't think we do. At the end of the day, no one wants to have stress. No one wants to have, you know, strain. No one wants to have anxiety, anxiety. We all desire that at the end of the day. And I think I learned that it is a thing that ties us all together. It's what makes us human. And I try to share that in my creations, whether it's through stand-up comedy or the things I do and some of the characters I play or the projects I'm a part of. And it's something I want to keep doing, whether it's something I create or write or whatever do in the future. What it has done for me is only inspired me more to push forward with this thing I was raised with, which was, I'm an example, living example of different cultures existing as one. And I'm mostly sane and I'm mostly functional. I'm okay. And you can be okay too. So it's only inspired me to keep up with this theme because I see it as I've been given this blessing. I've been given this example. I can be a living example of this. And if I'm not going to use it, then who will? So I guess that's why I'm not wasting time and why My journey has been so explosive since I left Ethiopia. That kid that had so much to say and so much to express, it's not whittled down, it's not tempered down. If anything, it's always searching for the right people or the right opportunity to be able to continue to tell and make and create these stories that will share this message.
0: Final question as a sort of follow-up to what you just said. I want to read a quote to you. Follow your bliss and the universe will open doors where there were only walls. Why does that Joseph Campbell
1: quote mean so much to you? I'm so glad you brought that up. That's my favorite quote. You know, living as an entertainer, as an actor, as a comedian, just someone creative, even just living as an independent person, there's so much, in LA particularly, there's so much stress in trying to make a living. There's so much stress in just trying to make rent and trying to keep up with your work and, you know, move ahead and try to get things done in certain timeframes and, There's others that are doing the same thing. So it's hard not to compare yourself or look at them and analyze and criticize. And what has worked for me is just making sure that whatever I'm doing is the thing that brings me joy or to at least do something that brings me joy because that's life, right? I mean, unfortunately, I've lost family members way too soon who were not doing something they love to do and were not happy with their jobs or Wished they had. That's my fear, is moving on to the next life with, I wish I had. I don't want that feeling. I want to be able to do what I love to do. And I've seen it firsthand that when you do something that sparks your joy, the universe will open doors for you. It sounds hippy-dippy and it has been criticized before, this way of thinking, this way of thought, because some people are like, well, I can't follow my joy because I'm doing this nine-to-five job that I have to do to pay my bills. Yes. But if you approach it with the attitude of, thank God I have this job that can pay my bills, it's different. And if you are not happy with your job, and I've seen this too, like people who are working a job and criticizing it and complaining, and eventually they lose their job. I'm like, yeah, the universe is listening to you. You are not happy with this job. So what it has done is made space for you to get something that you might love, move on to something that you might like. And yes, it's not easy and it's scary to take a leap of faith and it's horrifying and some people might not see it in their reality. And I totally respect that. So I know it's one of those quotes that gets criticized, but for me in my life, me personally, it has worked. And when I do do something that I love and that brings me joy, things flow and I want to stay in that flow. And so it's a quote I stand by. I guess I'm a hippie. And like I said, my blood types be positive.
0: You know, it's nice to have on an actor from a hit HBO show. There is no downside there. But the big reason I wanted to have you on is because your personal story and the ethos that you espouse is, as you just said, a living example of different cultures living as one. And that's a story we all need to hear. I think we need to hear it again and again and again, perhaps now more than ever. So thank you for sharing it with us, Samba, and thank you for your time.
1: No, thanks so much for this, Michael. It's been such a pleasure to be able to share this with you.
0: Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. I want to learn more about the Where We Go Next audience, which means I want to learn more about you and your thoughts on the show. So if you're listening right now, please send me an email at wherewegopod at gmail.com and let me know one, what's your all time favorite episode of the podcast and why? Two, what's your least favorite episode of the podcast and why? And three, where would you like to see this show go next? And hey, While you're here, if you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to hearing from you.